everybody welcome to another episode of back to the movies i'm your host ben and with me as always is my co-host nat mcgee ben how you doing today i'm doing okay it's so hot in this room that i'm in right now it is killing me do you got the ac going oh wait you can't you're recording i'm recording you got the fans going no can't have a fan but that's because of your commitment to the listeners It's fitting that it's hot for you and I because we are watching a movie today from the creator of one of the hottest movies of all time. And I don't mean sexually hot. I mean like heat hot. Do the right thing. Spike Lee. We're talking about Mo Better Blues, his next year follow-up, which is not as seen, not as talked about, not as prevalent in the movie culture. And we're going to get into maybe why that is, what we thought of the movie. But Nat, are you ready for a hot take? Yeah. It's also a pretty hot movie. Pretty hot. It's a pretty sexy movie. It is. It's way sexier than Do the Right Thing. But should we explain what everyone's listening to? What is Back to the Movies, Ben? What is this show? Back to the Movies, we go back to years of cinema history. We look at the movies that made it what it was. Our first season, which we are well into at this point, is on the year 1990. The year of our entrance into the world. We were both born that year. Yes, we're 30 years old in the year that we're recording this, which is 2020. And yeah, we're just kind of exploring 1990, sort of sequentially in order. I know those two things mean the same thing, sequentially in order, whatever. We're in August 1990. Spike Lee is following up from his smash hit, Do the Right Thing, with a very interesting right turn. Is it an interesting right turn? I think so. I mean... Of all of his films up to this point, this is the one that is least concerned with race, or at least least overtly concerned with it. This definitely feels like the movie that you get to make after hitting it big. You can kind of do whatever you want. And this is one of the best versions of that movie I've ever seen. It's clearly a very personal movie. It's about his father, who's a jazz musician. It's about him as an artist. I feel like he's bringing a lot of himself to this. He's not just commenting on the world around him. He's bringing his own experiences as an artist to this. That's just the the read that I get because it's about a driven, passionate artist. And that's exactly who Spike Lee is. And most of his family, too, including his dad and his sister. Yeah, so it seems like he's saying this one is about me and my family a little bit more than it is about society or whatever. Still plenty of that. Still plenty of that, yeah. But bringing that more personal note, I haven't seen his first two films. You should see She's Gotta Have It. It's really I want to see them all. I want to see all of his films because he's definitely one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. And Do the Right Thing is my favorite movie. I can say that with confidence. I rewatched it recently. I have the new Criterion remastered Blu-ray. <laughs> Humble break. And I rewatched it the other day in anticipation of watching this movie. And I was just like, this movie's amazing. I think it's my favorite movie. And I've been saying it's been my favorite movie, but I'm always flip-flopping. Always, but you got to just settle on one eventually. And I put it down there. But it's weird because I haven't 
taken the time to watch every Spike Lee movie for some reason. I've, I've done it with a couple filmmakers. There are a lot of them. There's tons. And he's a little more prolific than some of the other filmmakers that I've seen all the films of. Like, I've seen every Coen Brothers movie, and I feel like they kind of do a steady stream of, like, every three years they release a movie. And then, I don't know. Each one is set in a different time period, so it sort of feels like watching something completely brand new. And I feel like Spike Lee's movies, especially these early 90s ones, are a little more New York-based. So once you've seen one, you're like... I don't know if I want to go to the next one so soon. So I feel like I'm savoring them a little bit. He does circle back around to the same themes, the same characters, the same aesthetic choices over and over again. But it's incredible how that never feels old. It's sort of like Kubrick in that way, where, where Kubrick does the same thing, where a lot of his movies have a similar feel to them, but each one of them is eminently watchable. I don't know if I agree with that. I feel like Kubrick kind of jumps genres and he jumps looks a little bit more than Spike Lee. Like, he doesn't use the same actors all the time. That's true. That's a big part of it. I feel like every Kubrick movie feels like a totally different, not filmmaker, but a different world, a different genre. Whereas Spike Lee is kind of staying mostly in the same lanes, but always making it his own thing and always making it super watchable. See, what I thought was interesting about this film is it felt more in common with some of his later works. I was thinking like 25th Hour. Oh, yeah. And uh, Inside Man, some of his slightly more like somber New York movies compared to something like Do the Right Thing. And although you haven't seen it, she's got to have it, which are really energetic. Yeah. But I don't know. I think this movie also has energy. This movie was taking a lot of cues from Do the Right Thing. It was definitely like made with the Do the Right Thing fans in mind. Well, you can tell that we're both really excited to talk about it because we've sort of abandoned structure and just yeah, gotten right we, into it. Yeah, we're just having a normal conversation. It's kind of like jazz. <laughs> I really enjoyed this movie. It was my first time seeing it, and I was like, holy shit, how did I not watch this movie years ago when I was discovering Do the Right Thing? But it's because it was waiting for this 1990 podcast, I think. Do you think you would have enjoyed it as much then? I don't. I don't. I think I am at the perfect age to enjoy this movie because I have lived as an adult in New York City. I have lived in art circles. I've been a professional editor in New York and I've hustled and I've dealt with personalities. And I just don't know if I would have appreciated it as much if I hadn't had those experiences like that really colored my view of this movie. And I'm not saying you can't appreciate it because you haven't had those experiences. But for me, it was like, wow, I love this. This is amazing. There's also an element where like do the right thing is a movie about and sort of for angry young men people who are looking at an unjust world and don't know how to come to grips with it. And this is a movie about somebody moving from their angry young man phase into the next phase of their life, into their fatherhood, into their family phase. And so it's a little bit more mature. Totally. Okay, here's my take on this movie and on Spike Lee generally, because I think a lot of this discussion is going to center around Lee. I'll spoiler alert for the book report corner there. I couldn't actually dig up that much information about the making of this film. It seems like Lee who independently produced the film anyway, had a lot of leeway because of do the right thing. Didn't run into a lot of creative challenges that had to be solved and was able to just sort of make the movie he wanted to make. So that's not very interesting, but Spike Lee himself is. And I think we'll talk about him a lot. And here's my take on Lee and this movie. 
I feel like a lot of filmmakers, a lot of filmmakers, the vast, vast majority of filmmakers, including filmmakers I love and who I consider great, only use a few filmmaking colors, if you'll pardon the metaphor. They don't make use of every tool available to them as a director. They are limited in imagination. They are very literal in the way they present stories. Lee's not like that. He paints with the whole palette. He uses every tool at his disposal and it makes his movies exhilarating to watch just from a filmmaking standpoint regardless of whatever else is happening on screen thematically or narratively or performance wise just the filmmaking itself is almost always worth the watch and that's an incredible floor to have for your film right because then everything else on top of that just elevates it beyond it it's bravura stuff and this movie is no exception i was floored by the technique present in this movie not to mention the performances which are stunning the cinematography which is gorgeous the music which is unparalleled yeah it's a really great movie and i feel like it's living in the shadow of do the right thing there's one other massive asterisk that i'm just gonna place up front here and we can get into discussion more the flatbush brothers are a problem Yes. They are badly written characters and they are a stain on the movie, but they are in little enough of it that I was able to get beyond that and really enjoy everything else that this movie is doing. Let's get into Ben's book report corner on this. And we have to start with Spike Lee. 1986, he makes She's Gotta Have It. Freshly graduated from NYU, where he got his master's degree. He's already made a couple of student films at this point. This is his first feature. It's kind of the opposite of this movie. It's about a woman juggling multiple men. It's a really wonderful, fun movie. He makes it for $175,000. It makes $7 million. It is hugely profitable for an independently produced movie. It is that movie, almost more than anything, that goes on to help establish the black independent cinema force that really helped establish the, the black independent cinema scene that became a force to be reckoned with in Hollywood in the late 80s and 90s. And that sort of ties back to our house party conversation. Exactly. That movie effectively probably wouldn't exist without the success of She's Gotta Have It. Which is why when you look at interviews with the Hudlin brothers, even though they're only making their movie a few years after Spike, they talk about him in hushed tones. They're kind of awed by his success. He follows up She's Gotta Have It with a movie called School Days in 88. I haven't seen this one. 88 is also the year that the Air Jordan Nike shoes start using Spike Lee's character from She's Gotta Have It, Mars Blackman, as a spokesperson, which I have to imagine made Spike Lee more than just a darling indie filmmaker. Those must have catapulted him into just a mainstream spotlight. I can't even think of another comparison. Like, sometimes filmmakers show up in commercials like, I don't know, there was like those MasterCard ads with like james cameron and martin scorsese with wes anderson (laughs) but they're not they're not the same as like a director who's also an actor reprising a character from a movie they made yeah it's funny i read a little article on yahoo movies about how that came to be and it was basically these two ad execs in la went to go see some shitty movie in the late 80s i can't remember what it was but it was like a shitty comedy and there's a famous trailer for she's gotta have it where Spike Lee, I think playing Mars Blackman, is selling tube socks on the street. I actually think he's just playing himself, but it's a version of himself that's very similar to Mars Blackman. Yeah, and he's like, 
if you don't see she's got to have it, I'm going to have to keep selling socks on the street. And these guys were like, man, wouldn't it be funny if Jordan was in a commercial with this guy? And they, they called him. They found his personal phone number in the yellow pages for Brooklyn because he wasn't <laughs> a big deal yet. And they called him and he was like, what? Are you kidding me? And they were like, no, this is real. We want to do an ad with Jordan. And he was like, okay. Yeah, big sports fan. I'm sure he was thrilled. Yeah, no, he was ecstatic. And they shot all these ads. And I'm assuming we are we were not alive at this point, And we don't have a guest here to contextualize this for us. But I'm assuming that that would make him super famous because Jordans were the shit that that trailer for she's gotta have it is also one of the great movie trailers and then after that let's talk about the big dog do the right thing in 89 a masterpiece one of the great movies of all time you've already said your favorite movie period my favorite movie if someone asks me what's your favorite movie i'm gonna say do the right thing so that's a pretty impressive rise right there. In three years, he goes from a film school graduate to the king of an entire cinema movement, a household name, an ad celebrity, and the filmmaker behind one of the great movies with a capital G. And that's the context that he brings to this film. And it's hard not to, like you said, look at this movie and not think about the shadow of Do the Right Thing. Because this movie does feel like him deliberately moving in a different direction, trying to tell a different kind of story, as much because he knows that he can't top what he's done before, as because he wants to explore new veins of storytelling. Well, and it also feels like, as a filmmaker, when are you going to get a chance to make a movie about a jazz musician and his life? Like, it's a tough game, filmmaking, and like to make a movie on this level about that kind of thing with an all-black cast, it seems like a great opportunity to just kind of do whatever you want. And this might be that movie that he wanted to do. I wish I could find something of him saying this was like the passion project that he always wanted. I know, this is all speculation, but there's just so many things that I think make it that project that I'm just assuming. Just because of his father and because of his own artistic sensibilities, it just really feels like this is the movie that he had to make to confront all of that. Well, then let's talk about the music. Let's talk about jazz. Nat, how do you feel about jazz? Jazz is cool. I've never gotten that jazz bug that you seem to have. You you seem to be like an actual appreciator of jazz. I'm more of like a, oh, that's cool. I dig that. In the same way that like you probably wouldn't want to go to like a house music rave. <laughs> nope. No, I would not. Uh, which I am like, yeah, let's go. So different strokes for different folks. Uh, But you talk to me about jazz. I don't consider myself like any great jazz expert. There are people who are deeply invested in that culture. And for me, that's film. That's like my, that's my philia. Me too. I don't know like obscure house artists, but I'll, I'll go to the concert. Jazz was really important to me growing up. I come from a very musical family. Both my parents are musicians, both my brothers are musicians. My dad conducts uh, multiple groups and plays the cello and sings. Uh, my mom sings, my brothers play the piano and the clarinet and the drums. And so music was always a huge, huge part of our life growing up. And it's tricky when you have something that you share with your family, right? Because that's nice, but you also want part of it to just be yours. Totally. And for me, that that was what jazz was. When I was in middle school, the music teacher was this guy named Andy Smith. Really cool dude. I'm going to shout him out. Bald, but he had a ponytail. He loved the Beatles. 
especially George Harrison. He played bass uh, in, in a band and uh, he played trombone and he got me to play the trombone and he conducted the middle school jazz band. It was the, it was called the, the Williston central school blues band. And so I joined that when I was in fifth grade. And then by the time I got to high school, the high school I went to had a pretty prestigious jazz program in the state of Vermont, you know, as far as that goes, one of the best high school jazz bands in the state. And so that became a big part of, of what I did when I played music. And so in high school in particular, that was my music scene. When my contemporaries and my peers were listening to Kanye West, I was listening to Miles Davis. So I have an abiding love for it, even if I wouldn't call it like any great expertise. And pretty much any movie about jazz already gets like some free points from me. Even if it's sort of like patronizing, you know, like La La Land. The description of jazz in that is like so obnoxious and obvious, but I still love it. That scene's awesome. Well, and I also feel like jazz lends itself to cinema in a really good way. Like the minute you're talking about jazz, it's like smoky clubs and brass instruments and people in cool suits. It's so mood driven and mood is so important to music in movies. So the musicians in this movie are really important because their contribution is much more like forwarded than a musician's work is normally in a movie. You've got three you got to talk about. First off is Bill Lee, Spike Lee's father, jazz musician, a really important figure in Spike's life, um, who composed the scores for most of his early films. Do the Right Thing score, which I've listened to. I had that on my iPod in high school. That's what I was listening to in high school. I was listening to fucking Do the Right Thing score. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's really good. And this one was good, too. It's amazing. He's great. The sad thing is he and Spike have a major falling out in 1991. So this is the last film they work on together. In 91, Bill Lee was arrested for drug possession, which was probably a pretty big strain on, you know, the burgeoning career of Spike. But Bill actually says that it had to do with his second marriage. Shortly after Spike's mother died, Bill started dating a white woman that he would eventually marry. And according to Bill, that Spike never forgave him for that. Now that happened many years before this. So it's sort of odd that like 91 would be when they stopped working together. But... That shows up in this movie with Left Handed, and it shows up a lot in the next movie, Jungle Fever. It's crazy that that happened early. It's it's just it makes you think about the artist putting himself out there and how that affects people in his or her life. Like people see what you've created and they're like, "Wait a second, that's me, motherfucker!" Fuck, <laughs> like. I could see that being a problem. Definitely, um, definitely. So we don't we don't know anything. We don't have any inside scoop on this podcast, but we love to speculate on these sorts of things. And I have to say, the score for this movie is also pretty wonderful. The way that it kind of weaves in and out of the diegetic music being played is really effective, considering the number of musicians who worked on this movie. So let's talk about the other musicians. So the other two I want to quickly talk about are Branford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard. Branford Marsalis was sort of the inheritor of the great jazz legends, the John Coltrane's and the Miles Davises. He's definitely sort of the, the next generation and became a very prominent figure there. He plays Shadow's sax parts and his quintet doubles for the quintet in the movie. So that's Branford Marsalis's group that's actually playing. He was an actor too. He, he was uh, had a prominent role in School Days. And then Terrence Blanchard plays the trumpet parts. And he would go on to be Spike's go-to composer for the rest of his career. And that includes 
25th Hour, which is one of my all-time favorite scores. I think it's incredible. Me too. That's another amazing one that I've listened to on repeat. All these guys are credited for different numbers in the movie. Marsalis and Blanchard, more for the songs the band plays, the Bleak Quintet, and Bill Lee for the score, but they're all really involved. And it, obviously, this movie is coming from like a very real, authentic place with these artists. Like... The artists are lending so much to what makes this movie tick, and it's awesome. I think authentic is the right word, because this movie really presents the musicians, the environment they're in, and their music in a way that doesn't feel artificial at all. It feels like Spike's in the club. Well, and I'm sure he is. His father was a fucking jazz musician. It's like, it's awesome. It's, it's like awesome that these people can come together and make something like this in the same way that it's awesome that you can get people on stage at a jazz club and have them make something like this. It's just so cool that it can extend to film. One of the bravest things about this movie is that Spike Lee is coming off of do the right thing, which he wrote, directed, produced and starred in. And that is so singularly his work. It is synonymous with his name. And in this movie, he hands off a huge element the music is so critical to this movie, and he is still at a point where he is willing to allow tremendously talented people to offer their work instead. Um, and that's that's brave. That's hard to do. From Do the Right Thing, it's clear that Spike Lee is like a huge appreciator of all types of music. He has that scene where Samuel Jackson just lists off like 80 artists and the great black musicians all the great black musicians and he's from talking about people from the fifties and the forties. And he's talking about rap people and he's talking about R and B people. And it's like, wow, this guy clearly is musical in some insane way. And there's a whole discussion to be had about just like how music informs film so much. It might be the most important thing to a film other than like the picture itself. I mean, yeah, that's where film starts, right? It starts with image and the next element that's introduced after image is music. Before dialogue, before sound effects, it's somebody on a piano or an orchestra playing along to the images that they see. It's all you need. You just need the images and the music. Let's get into the plot because we've been waxing poetic for a while now. You know, we've been freestyling. We've been, <laughs> right. uh, we've been improvising. We've been soloing a little bit. Okay, okay, okay. So yeah, the plot. We open up on some beautiful close-ups of a trumpet am i correct yes yeah the credit shot mm -hmm. yeah and it reminded me so much of blue steel which is a movie we talked about that comparison is so interesting too because bleak's trumpet is jamie lee curtis's gun like they're the same to those characters they're weapons uh but this was a much better version of that because it was like different colors and really making the interesting trumpet <laughs> shots I was I was more into I it. I think better is not a fair term to put there. Really? Because I think it was better. The photography in, in, in Blue Steel is more technically impressive in that scene. The crispness of that image. We don't need to talk about Blue Steel ever again. <laughs> so yeah, then we open into Brooklyn, 1969. Yeah. This feels like Spike flexing his muscles a little bit, right? Like he can get a bunch of period cars. He can do a big crane shot. Things he probably couldn't afford on his earlier movies. I guess so. He's got crane shots and, and do the right thing. I, I just feel like he's making a statement 
that like this is gonna be a life story sure this isn't a slice of life like do the right thing we're gonna be honing in on this one guy and we're traveling with this guy well and we can talk about it when we get to the ending but the way the ending as it compares to the opening recontextualizes the middle 80 percent of the movie is actually pretty incredible Oh, I know. I know. I can't wait to talk about that. But we have this scene where the kids want to play with Bleak, and Bleak is practicing trumpet. He's basically being forced into practicing his scales on the trumpet by his mother and father. I sympathize with this so much. Did you play an instrument in school at all? I did. So I also come from a musical family. My mom and dad are actors slash musicians. My dad played piano really well. And yeah, they, they tried to get me into piano, but it didn't didn't take. Uh, my parents were more like the parents at the end of this movie than at the beginning <laughs> of this movie, which I think is a good thing. But I also felt I think I was very much like young bleak in this where I really resented music in some ways, with the exception of jazz. Uh, particularly piano lessons. God, I hated piano lessons. I hated to practice. I never wanted to do any of that. Well, that's the tragedy of being young is that like they tell you, but you don't understand. Like, no, you literally just have to practice for like three hours a day to get any good at this. Otherwise you'll suck. (laughs) And that's just something you need to learn. (laughs) Bleak learns and he stays with it. And we get a great cut over 20 years where we see, okay, fuck, he, he learned how to play trumpet, and he's really good. He's commanding a club in New York City. Let's just talk about Denzel. Denzel Washington. Holy shit. <laughs> Denzel Washington is a fucking movie star, man. He is so good in this movie. I don't know what it was that took me so off guard, because of course Denzel Washington was good in this movie. He's a tremendous actor with a very long and storied career. But I was startled by how good he was. You just love the guy. You kind of hate the guy, but you love him no matter what. He's a movie star. There's no more to be said about it, really. This movie uses all of his talents to such a good extent. The character is sort of the perfect Denzel Washington character. Charming and handsome, but also intense and focused and a star, but wounded inside in a way that's hard to put a finger on i actually read that denzel washington attended military school when he was young and that explained a little bit to me because he really does feel like a military guy he's got such command it seems like he's the kind of guy that has like perfect discipline you hear these stories about the jazz greats and how hyper focused they were to the detriment of everything else around them which is kind of what this movie is about The crazy thing is, too, is how early this is in his career. He's got work throughout the 80s, but his big breakout isn't really until 87. He is a major, major part of the Richard Attenborough movie Cry Freedom. And that's sort of like when everyone sits up and takes notice. And then in 88 and 89, he's got the lead role in a pair of thrillers, which I just think is important to mention because that's kind of what the Denzel Washington movie is in the 90s. So then he follows up establishing the the Washington brand with glory and his Oscar win. Within a couple of years in prominent roles, he's already got an Oscar and then he's in this movie. And it's just like, it's like the perfect movie for him at this time. A complex, meaty role for him to explore a really interesting character. It definitely presages Malcolm X for me in a lot of ways, which, you know, 92, a couple years after this, where it's a broader and more 
difficult character for Washington to play. And he's just so good at those roles. I hate that he kind of doesn't do them more often. Yeah. His recent stuff is a little, I don't know. It's the guy worked really hard for so many years. I'm, I'm kind of like, let him do whatever he wants now. But even in like the height of his career, like he's great in like the Pelican brief, but that character is nowhere near as interesting or satisfying as bleak. And this is also the beginning of a, pretty cool collaboration between him and spike lee they did four movies together they did malcolm x he got game and inside man so maybe one day we'll get a fifth that would be awesome did you watch the five bloods yet i haven't i wanted to in anticipation for this but i didn't get a chance to i had mixed feelings on it but if you read the original cast that he wanted for that movie it's insane and Denzel was on the list. Ah, oh, Denzel didn't want to do it? I mean, so he wanted Denzel, and then he wanted Denzel's son, you know, who was in Black Klansman. So I don't know if that was going to be the Delroy Lindo and his son roles in the movie, but that would have been really something. Denzel's too cool for Netflix, I guess. So let's talk about the rest of the band. Yeah, we, we meet them all kind of in this scene. It's a great introductory scene where we use the fact that Bleak is introducing the band members to also introduce all of our major characters and actors. We've got Wesley Snipes playing Shadow, the sax player. Again, pretty early in Snipes' career. He feels very, very cool and confident up against Washington, even though, you know, he really hasn't had that many movies. His first major role was Major League the year before. Mm. Well, and then this year he had King of New York. Let us not forget the black cop with an Irish name. (laughs) Uh, you know fun fact is uh when he took the role in major league he had to turn down a smaller part and do the right thing oh i wonder what part that was holy shit yeah i don't know uh i mean there's plenty of people that could have been it sort of feels like maybe like bugging out but giancarlo esposito is so good in that role oh my god well let's talk about giancarlo esposito uh yeah he's playing left hand the pianist in this movie he has the most incredible look i've ever seen that guy is an amazing actor He is amazing and do the right thing. Obviously, he really became like a household name with Breaking Bad. But over the years, he's just in so many cool roles. He was also in King of New York this year. Another great looking character with awesome fashion sense. But Buggin' Out is one of the greatest characters of all time. So incredible. (laughs) It's so good. He should have gotten an Oscar for that movie. This character is so different than that one. I know. It almost felt like a comment on, like, we got to show Giancarlo Esposito not as bugging out. We got to show him as, like, a soft-spoken, lackadaisical kind of guy. He's the least intense of the band members, considering he was the most intense to do the right thing. Rounding out the cast of the band members were Bill Nunn, who's Radio Rahim and Do the Right Thing, and also playing a super different role here. He looks like every bass player I've ever known. It's such good casting. And then we've got... Jeffrey Watts, Jeff Watts, who was an actual drummer playing the drummer in the band. Was he not like an actor? He's more of just yeah, a musician. He's a musician. Got a role. And yeah. his character is the the least highlighted of the band, so that makes sense. We also meet Spike Lee as Giant. Yes. The manager. Let me ask you, how do you feel about Spike Lee as an actor? I think that he is not the most true actor out there. Even in something like Do the Right Thing, where he is so well placed in the film and that movie is so perfect you can look in his eyes and see that he's he's not living the reality of the moment in the same way as everyone else well he's got a lot of other shit he's thinking about (laughs) exactly 
Um, but there is something kind of fun about him, and particularly when he plays these high energy characters. You know, this brings to mind Mars Blackman in the TV ads and the Spike Lee of the She's Gotta Have It trailer and Spike Lee in that movie. He's not quite as bouncing off the wall as he is in those, but he's got an offbeat energy that I think is a nice balance. And I think he pairs really well with Denzel as something for Denzel to play against in their scenes together. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think that when it's like the hangout scenes and when he's jibing with other people and giving people shit, he's really great. But when it comes down to like that final scene with him where he's got the cane and he's yelling at Denzel, he's just not hitting it. Yeah. I won't sell it. Yeah, you're just kind of like, "Uh, that wasn't that wasn't great." Like you could see a great actor doing that, but didn't hit the right way. I think the reason that he still works in these movies is because Spike Lee is doing so much other stuff to convey the narrative and the emotional state and the experience of the film that it doesn't rely on performance alone. You know, you can have a movie where to make the audience feel sad, you just put a close up of a person who's acting sad so convincingly that they feel an empathetic response, but there's other ways to do it. You know, I'm thinking about the scene where um, giant walks up and he sees the car with the enforcers for the bookie, a scene that, you know, I don't know. His performance is fine in that scene. It's almost like non-existent where he, like he gets one shot where he reacts to them and it's kind of goofy, but it doesn't matter because the scene does so much work with the movement of the camera and the camera angles and the editing and the pacing and the music that it doesn't matter that he's not nailing the performance. It's good enough. And the character still is there. Yeah. The filmmaking carries the moment basically. So yeah, I'm, I'm down with some spike acting. It's fine. And obviously do the right thing. It's amazing. And yeah, here it's fine too. I like the giant character and I like the relationship between giant and bleak. I think that's a really interesting dynamic that's really well played out in the movie. Do you want to, while we're on the club scene, do you briefly want to mention Robin Harris? Oh yeah, Robin Harris, who we talked about a lot in our house party episode. Check it out if you haven't. But yeah, just a guy who was so prominent in this moment. He's in Do the Right Thing. He's in House Party. He's in this. And he tragically passed away in 1990. He passes away in March. So it's after the release of House Party, but before the release of this film. And the movie's dedicated to him. He's just so fucking funny. I was laughing at his bit. He just basically is like the MC at the jazz club. And he he's great. He's amazing. And like I really wish he hadn't died because he's so good. He speaks to the authenticity of this movie. That when Bleak and his band takes a break and the comedian comes up on stage, Spike found an actual comedian who just does his routine and he lets it play for long enough that you just get the feel of being in that club so honestly and truthfully. It's it's wonderful. R.I.P. So rather than like try to actually lay out the plot of this movie, because this really isn't a movie about plot, I thought it would be better to break down some of the major conflicts in the film and talk about specific scenes and moments within that context. Yeah, that sounds good. So the biggest one by far is the romantic conflict. Yeah. Bleak has two ladies on the hook. You've got Joy Lee, Spike Lee's sister as Indigo. And you've got a debut performance from an actress named Cinda Williams as Clark. What are your thoughts on this element of the narrative? Does stuff work for you? 
oh, it totally worked for me. It's tragic in a way that these women are putting everything they've got into this guy and most of the movie he's kind of using them for sex or whatever else he wants like this whole movie is about how art can lead you to fuck other people over and just be very one track minded and how it can kind of hurt other people because you stop thinking about other people's feelings i think both of their performances are amazing especially joy lee I really liked her in this movie a lot more than I like her in Do the Right Thing. But actually, on my most recent watch of Do the Right Thing, I kind of re-appreciated her. I think she brings a lot to that movie. And yeah, I mean, there's nothing that illuminating about either of these relationships. There's nothing brand new that I'm seeing for the first time. But it's just a great portrait of a guy who's taking advantage of women that love him. Or maybe not even love him, but lust after him or think that maybe they could be business partners just as much as they are romantic partners. Like, it's a really interesting three-way dynamic being explored in nice, long terms. There's a a couple things I really want to highlight, and I think you described it accurately. This love triangle is not the most revolutionary. It has, like, a you know, the scene where both of them show up to the date effectively wearing the same dress that he bought for them in Paris. And that feels like a scene like you've seen before, even like on a sitcom, but it's anchored by some pretty solid performances. I agree that Joy Lee is pretty fantastic. And I think Cinda Williams is also really, really good playing a pretty narrow role. These characters definitely kind of fit the Madonna and whore archetype. And I want to talk about that more when we talk about themes and they don't really break out beyond that. Other than the fact that they are just both delivering very warm, naturalistic performances that resonate. But the way Spike tells the story is, I think, what really elevates it. Partly because the bleak character is a really fascinating character. So seeing how he responds to everyone else in his world is always interesting. Mostly because of the kind of stuff that Spike is doing, like, in the wrong name scene. So there's a sequence where bleak is almost it's almost montage-esque, but like in the Soviet sense, not in the Rocky sense, where we're seeing a love scene between Bleak and Clark, who's sort of the seductress of the two. And then it transitions into a love scene between Bleak and Indigo. And then both scenes are happening at the same time, and it breaks out into a fight when Bleak calls Clark by the wrong name. And the scenes intercut in a way where he's having conversations with both of them at the same time. And his eyeline is with two different eyelines at the same time. It's amazing. There's three close-ups and they're spatially positioned in the edit so that it looks like both women are in the room at the same time. And it's a really dynamic, dramatic way to present this part of the arc. It's fascinating. It's one of my favorite scenes I've ever seen. It's so well done. Everything about it, the arc of the scene, from the love to the fight, to basically the end of both of these relationships, to the way it's written, to the performances, to the way it's shot, it's a masterclass. It's very confident filmmaking. So let's talk about the next sort of major conflict, which is Shadow versus Bleak. Yeah, Wesley Snipes playing Shadow is the young upstart who wants to play more popular music in the clubs because he thinks that's going to get his career further along. And he solos too long. Oh, man. That gives me flashbacks to Jazz Ben right there. Yeah, he's just kind of a cocky asshole in a different way that Bleak is kind of a cocky asshole. Like Bleak is a little more mature. He's a little more held back, I think. He's 
in it a little bit more for himself than he is just for his career. And Shadow is just wants to get ahead and he wants to take Bleak's place, basically. Bleak definitely puts the art first, but that also means that he is unwilling to accept anyone else's idea of what the art should be. I The movie does a really good job of making Shadow seem like the villain of this two-hander for most of the movie, but kind of turning it around when we finally see what he's able to do when he's outside of Bleak's shadow. He is an actual artist and manages to be just as good as Bleak, basically. It becomes very clear that Bleak's way is not the only way. And I think this also feels very true to what happens when you have exceptionally talented people with high opinions of themselves, with egos, trying to collaborate together. And I wonder how much this is a reflection of how Spike has felt working with different collaborators over the years. I'm sure he's bringing everything from his personal life to this movie. It's amazing. The ego, the control element of it. Can we talk about the scene when Giant goes over to Shadow's apartment and Shadow has the monologue about how good his girlfriend's sense of smell is? Oh, yeah. And he's like, I had to go all around town to get different condoms so because she's an accountant. What is so funny. What a great funny scene that, like, I mean, it does show us a little bit more about Shadow's character, but it it's, like, kind of separate from everything else in the movie. And he's debating whether or not he needs to wash the sheets. And then he's just like, fuck it. I'm just going to wash them. It's just fun. You want to see two guys, Wesley Snipes and Spike Lee, talking about changing sheets and girlfriends that smell the sheets and condoms. And it adds absolutely nothing other than the minor thing about the record that Shadow lent to Bleak. But it just adds so much to the movie. Yeah, It's so valuable. The world of this movie and the relationships of all the people within it feel so expansive. It's part of what gives it such a feel of naturalism is that it isn't limited in scope. There's a scene that doesn't fit into any of these categories that I just want to talk about, which is when Bleak plays catch with his dad. What a wonderful little scene. I think that's going to tie into the ending. And I wanted to mention something about that scene. Bleak's apartment, another New York City location scout fun fact is now where his apartment is it's like the corner by the brooklyn bridge and it's is now if you played catch at that exact spot now you would hit a person in the face with the ball because there are thousands of tourists there now just totally just milling about just fucking getting on ferries buying ice cream going to grimaldi's pizza and i was just like wow (laughs) <laughs> Again, I am blown away by how much New York City has changed. God. It's amazing. I mean, this movie is super romantic about New York without ever like making a big deal out of it. Oh, my God. I, I recently moved out of Brooklyn because of coronavirus bullshit. And I, this movie had me missing Brooklyn so much. I was like, man, Brooklyn's cool. The little shot of, of Indigo and Bleak sitting in front of the bridge when it's all lit up. What got me was Bleak and Giant biking through Prospect Park. I was just like, ah, Prospect Park, awesome. Even even the decor of Bleak's apartment is like a celebration of New York City. He's got like a New York Yankees score board up on his wall. Yeah, that's right. Alongside, you know, album covers for great jazz albums. It's a very New York movie. Low-key New York movie. Love it. And of course, Spike Lee is one of the great New York filmmakers, but I really appreciated that this wasn't like Manhattan with like a monologue set to Rhapsody in Blue about how much he loves the city. But you know what? I will say that I'll bring a little bit of my personal parental experience into it. 
my dad was a guy who would hang out at places sort of like these jazz clubs. Not not these big jazz clubs where you're listening to music, but he did gigs in the 80s at this place called the West Bank Cafe, which is this downstairs theater bar at this 42nd Street restaurant. It really got me in that mood of like, oh man, it's so cool to like live in New York and like be running around to different gigs and like hanging out in the kitchen at the restaurant. Like this movie just got that vibe that sort of is not disappeared but is different now i don't know anything about gigging in new york in 2020 or 2019 because 2020 there is no gigging in new york but it's just a different time and it's a different way of life i think there's no internet to sell yourself it's all just like i gotta be at this fucking club to show my shit off and that's it so this movie really got me thinking about what my dad's life must have been like just like hanging out at the club every friday night and like characters like robin harris and characters like the fucking club owners like it's it's just a cool thing to think about and that world is so explored in this movie and it's extra appropriate because this movie is low-key so much about fathers and sons exactly i'm sure that had a lot to do with me thinking about that as well anyway okay let's talk about Giants part of the story. Yes, Giant, Spike Lee's character. Again, we talked about his acting already, but he is kind of the heart of the movie. You 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 end up rooting for the guy. He has the most plot propulsive storyline because he's he's a gambling addict. Yeah. Did you recognize his bookie? I didn't, but I'm looking at the notes now and I can't fucking believe it. It's Roman Blades! He's inescapable! He's everywhere. I can't believe it. Ruben Blades, for those who hasn't listened, is featured in Predator 2 in our sequel spectacular episode. And he also had the hit song, The Hit, in Q&A, which is in our crime triple feature. I feel like only the true fans of this podcast are listening to those episodes. So good on you if you know about Ruben Blades. Uh, he's great in this movie. I really liked him as the bookie. He's great. Yeah, he's a bookie. He was way better in this than he was in Predator 2. I'd love to play a bookie in a movie. I feel like that's a great <laughs> role. All you got to do is just tell the guy who's making the bets, like, you're fucking crazy, man. So I love the scene. But, I mean, it happens twice. But the first time when we're in Giant's apartment and Ruben Blades is there and he's like, I don't know if I can let you place any more bets. And, and Spike Lee's like, you got to let me place a bet. And then he pulls out the newspaper and he goes down Game by game by game. The whole day. All the games. This is such a better exploration of gambling addiction than Uncut Gems, which was like one of my favorite movies of last year. But that movie is just like a stupid theme park ride. And this was like, no, this man has an actual problem. And he's a compulsive gambling addict. And it's not cool at all. It's not like, I want the Celtics to cover. I want six points, blah, blah, blah. It's just like a guy sitting in a fucking dining room booth being like giants padres astros but like it's just fucking sad it's It's so fucking sad sad. there's nothing exhilarating about it it's just sad and i mean his sickness and the strain that it puts on bleak who is so regimented in his life that he cannot cut giant out of it that would break the rules he has to make space for this guy even though it ultimately ends up costing him his career because he's so set in his ways. All of these scenes, I think, are really 
beautiful, particularly the scene where they bike together and then uh, Bleak finally tells him that he's out as manager. Yeah, it feels like a real relationship. Was Giant supposed to be one of the kids in the first scene? Yes, he is name-dropped in the first scene. He's the shortest kid. Yeah, they have a lifelong relationship. And, you know, those things are sacred, but also can be really toxic in your life. And it's a super cool exploration of that kind of thing. And the movie makes it absolutely clear that Giant is the thing that holds Bleak back as much as anything. Well, we're on the subject of Giant. we got to talk about Samuel Jackson. Oh, yeah, Samuel Jackson shows up. He's got a great little role in this. Not quite as fun as his role in Do the Right Thing, although he gets to reprise that too on the radio. That was one of those moments where I was like, yeah, do the right thing. But we got to mention Samuel L. Jackson because this is 1990, right at the start of his career explosion. He is in seven movies in 1990. Seven. Are we covering any of the other ones? Yeah, he's in Goodfellas. He's in, oh, something else. Uh, Exorcist 3. Oh, can't wait. And from 1988 until this very year, 2020, Samuel Jackson has appeared in at least two movies every year. It goes back to 87 if you include Eddie Murphy Raw as a film release. It's crazier than that, too. In the 90s, starting with the year that we're covering this year, he appears in 44 movies. That's more than four movies a year on average. The guy was in everything. I guess it makes it easier if a lot of those are like supporting roles, like Jurassic Park and even something like Pulp Fiction. He's only in a third of the movie. Even this. But still an amazing accomplishment. What he can do so much better than anyone else who's ever tried it is he can take a little two scene role like the heavy for a bookie and turn him into a memorable character. Why is he have a broken leg is it just because he's got a broken leg that's all it is Well, the other dude had a broken finger and so then i was like were they ex-gambling addicts who now have to break legs you know have now switched sides i guess so they seem to take way too much pleasure in the beating of giant though to be just like people forced into the role so all right two more conflicts i want to briefly talk about and these ones can be short Within the band, other than the conflict between Shadow and Bleak and the bleed over from Giant's failures as a manager, the other sort of recurring conflict that comes up multiple times is Left Hand's white girlfriend. And also his general tardiness and lackadaisical nature. Yeah, he's sort of the third band member that actually gets some time to shine. Can we talk about that scene, the first scene where she comes back to the dressing room? And then we have the extended conversation after she leaves where Spike just holds on the mirror with Giancarlo Esposito in it. And there's a whole scene playing out behind us. And it's such a good scene of those guys just hammering into each other. They're giving him so much shit and it's so good. And Esposito is so, so good in that scene where he feels the peer pressure and the cultural stigma. And he's also really hurt, but he doesn't want to show it to the guys He's one of the best portrayals of, like, a guy who kind of knows that he's fucking up. But at the same time, the fact that he's got an annoying girlfriend shouldn't be that big of an issue. But these guys are making it a big issue. And he can't fight back because he's coming from a pretty weak position. Like, they say to him, like, any fucking piano player would take this gig in New York City. You're fucking lucky to be here. So he can't be, like, Wesley Snipes' character because he's not hot shit. And he just captures that perfectly. He's like, I don't want to rock the boat, but I want to keep what I like to have. And sorry. It's just, he's, he's so good at that. The other thing that's happening here, I mean, 
the reason they're making it such a problem for him is explicitly because she's white. They more or less say that. And by holding on Esposito, we really feel his side of, of that argument, which just really makes this idea that Spike Lee's father's interracial relationship would have been a problem for him because you can see him here really empathizing with the person in that situation, facing the stigma. That adds so much context. This movie is full of so many scenes that like, it alternates between scenes that highlight tremendous camera work and editing, classic Spike Lee stuff with colors and moving cameras and people parallaxing against spinning backgrounds with scenes where the camera doesn't move at all. And it's just highlighting performances. And that's what makes Spike Lee so great. He can do both of those things. It's not one or the other. It's all. The last conflict involves the Flatbush brothers. The owners of the club where Bleak's Quintet plays, they're the most antagonistic characters in the movie because they won't pay the band more. They won't release the band from their contract. And the characters are Jewish and they are, I would argue, and others have argued, a fairly anti-Semitic portrayal of Jewish club owner. Yeah. There's really not much more to them than that they are completely taking advantage of the artists working for them and that all they care about is money. The Anti-Defamation League, which is, you know, an organization specifically tasked with confronting anti-Semitic portrayals in media for the benefit of the Jewish ethnicity, called out the portrayal in this film. It It was a big deal. It was a big controversy at the time. Uh, and Lee responded with an editorial in the New York Times. Again, this is like a big deal to have this kind of conversation playing out in public like this involving the filmmaker. Uh, I read the editorial. It's worth looking up because it's like most of the things that Spike Lee does, very impassioned, very articulate, very thoughtful. And he specifically calls out two things. I mean, first he says that there is a problem with calling something anti-Semitic just because the characters are villainous. And then he talks about how there is a double standard and that he is facing harsher criticism because of who he is and the kinds of films he makes than other filmmakers would face in his shoes. Yeah, I mean, you got to look at the fact that Do the Right Thing was such a political movie that came out the year before. And people were saying that there were going to be riots because of this movie. It takes a pretty anti-police stance. So I'm sure that any little thing would set people off. There was definitely a strain of critics who kind of made it their mission to end Spike Lee's career. And so I can understand why he felt defensive and felt like he needed to respond this way. But... I think with the benefit of hindsight now, I, you know, I, I want to come out and say that he's wrong, that he's wrong, that these characters are anti-Semitic and that it's a problem the way they're portrayed in this movie. And that even given the double standard, which I believe what Spike Lee describes in his editorial is true, it doesn't really excuse the existence of these characters. The reasons are twofold. It's not just that they are the villains and are Jewish. It's the way that they're villainous. Yeah, they're kind of cartoon characters. They're cartoon characters in a movie that doesn't have other cartoon characters. Yeah, In a movie that's full of really complex and naturalistic characters, these guys are exaggerated, and it stands out even worse. They're kind of goofy, but it's not funny. They talk over each other in a very scripted way way you know they finish each other's sentences they monologue when they're alone it's a really uncomfortable thing they're not in very much of the movie and it's for the movie's benefit but i thought we should air that out because i think it's an important thing to recognize and and going into this movie it's something you should know about totally 
So let's talk about the final three big scenes. So the first one is Giant's gambling addiction culminates in him getting beaten half to death outside Bleak's club. Bleak coming to his rescue and getting beaten himself, destroying his mouth and therefore his ability to play. As he says earlier on, his lips is his living. Yeah, I've never thought about the fact that if if your lip is busted, you really can't play a brass instrument. It would hurt so much. Have you ever experienced that? Well, the only time I experienced something like it was when I got my wisdom teeth out. Okay. And they say that you have to wait like a certain amount of time before you play an instrument. And I didn't wait that amount of time. And uh, um, I played a little bit. And then I went to empty the spit valve at the bottom of the trombone slide. And uh, there was some blood in there. Hey, gross. nice. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and this is brutal. Giant's beating is sort of taking that air of gleefulness from the people beating him, which makes it all the more distressing. It's a surprising thing to have happen in the movie, particularly since the violence inflicted on Giant earlier is sort of comical. The breaking of the fingers. Yeah, I will say I, I didn't really understand what was going on at first when I thought it was going to be a situation where Bleak ignores Giant. But then he runs out and is pissed off about what happens. Like, he just had to finish his solo, basically, and then runs out. Well, and he actually stops before the solo finishes. It's a really interesting way of, like, expressing that moment of decision where we're intercutting the music with the beating and and Bleak's refusal to take action at first. You know, because that is the moment where music is no longer the most important thing in his life. And because he makes that choice, music is never going to be the most important thing in his life ever again. Yeah, and it calls kind of back to the scene where he's going over scales in his head and it does the first instance of the famous Spike Lee tracking shot where he puts the actor on a dolly. It's actually not in Do the Right Thing, surprisingly. There's a scene earlier in the movie where Bleak is going over scales and his girlfriend's trying to talk to him and he's just so in the moment he doesn't even hear her speaking and this scene kind of reminded me of that scene but now he's going to action to help giant yeah i mean talking about the way this movie uses music the music is also most of the jazz that we've heard has been a very sort of like a post blues very somber laid back cool chill kind of feel to it i mean he's got that great song about love that's all just like really down and low and slow And this is one of the few times where the music gets really agitated. You know, he's doing crazy uh, licks on the trumpet, going higher and higher and higher and higher while we're seeing Giant get beaten. And it's, I mean, the the fact that they kind of save that in their pocket for this moment, it makes it even more powerful. So then we move on to a little in-between scene where Bleak is like in his apartment, such amazing set design. He's like laying on newspapers and that's just an amazing moment. You can see like how broken he is not to have the structure of his life. Yeah, he's like listening to old records and yeah, a year goes by. We're all of a sudden jumping a year. Then we get the scene where he goes to try and play again. I just loved that he was able to get over everything that had happened with Giant and with Shadow. And it just really was like powerful to see these guys just kind of brush everything off and that's like being an adult it's like being able to get over the bullshit and it was just so cool to see a movie kind of illustrate that and like it's weird it's not the same as it was but and it's kind of weird but they also love each other 
And this is the, the scene where we see the consequences of his attitudes earlier in the movie sort of reflected back at him. Where we can see what Clark was capable of as a singer, what Shadow was capable of as a band leader, what they would have been able to do without Giant. And it's really powerful for how the movie just kind of puts those details there for you to see them, but doesn't comment on them. Yeah, it's funny because they make that club look so much cooler and nicer than the original club yeah the original club kind of looks like shit in comparison it's it's all like old-fashioned and like the decor is kind of moldy and old-fashioned yeah and this club is like there's people behind the musicians and it's just it's like this beautiful amazing place right and open and presumably they're being paid better too because that was always a big part of it Right. And then he gets up on stage and you think that like, so this movie has been about a man for whom music was everything and he lost it. But now at the end of the movie, he'll be able to reclaim it having grown. And the movie says, no, there's some things you don't get back. He can't play anymore. The damage was too severe. He lost too much time. He's not the musician he was. He never will be again. Can we talk a little bit about this movie's relationship to Whiplash, which is one of the most lauded movies of the past 10 years? A movie I love. I don't know how you feel about it, but I love. I also love it, but I don't know. I just was thinking a lot about it because this scene in particular is so similar to the end of Whiplash, where you have the guy that got a massive physical injury going back to another guy that he had a pretty strained relationship with. But this movie goes the other direction. Yeah. It's not like, oh, he went through all this adversity and now he's finally become great. And both of the movies comment on what greatness means and what the cost is. But Whiplash just kind of ends on this scene. In, in the Whiplash version of this scene, he gets a record deal or whatever because... He would played so well. Or, I mean, he just, he plays as well as he's ever played and we cut to black. Yeah. And I don't know. I just felt that this movie was a little bit better at exploring all of that. Whiplash kind of boiled it down to something very simple. It's like either you sacrifice your entire life to become the greatest or you're fucking garbage. And like. Though this movie doesn't disagree with that. Like Bleak will never be the greatest. Right. He's given up on that dream. It, what it's saying is that like that does that's not the only thing that matters. But this being the first time I've seen this movie, what makes this so incredible is it's like a twist ending. It's like I think I feel like I've been watching this one movie and then Bleak gets on stage and he can't play and he walks out. And I'm like, wait a second, what's going to happen now? Well, there's still like 10 minutes or 15 minutes left at this point. So you're kind of like, okay, well, if you have the time code available. I don't even think it's that. I don't even think it's that much. They cover a lot of ground in the last right. 10 minutes yeah, of this I mean, movie. they do. You're right. You're right. You're right. I, I give you 10. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, I was so startled by that. I was so unprepared. And then everything that follows changes so much about how I felt about the movie before it. And what I thought that movie was trying to say and what I thought about the character of Bleak and Washington's performance and Joy Lee's performance. Yeah, I wanted to quickly mention the scene of him coming to her late at night. Yeah, it's a little troublesome. He basically forces himself back into her life. And I don't know. I felt kind of bad for her. I was kind of like, does she really want this right now? Or is he just telling her, like, you got to take this? I don't know. It, it bothered me a little bit. I think it's sort of deliberately upsetting him refusing to leave. 
You know, he's like on the street corner and it's raining and he's shouting her name. And then, yeah, it is a very forceful way that he brings them back together. And I was, again, like, I'm I'm really, I was so wrong-footed by the scene before this. I was even more wrong-footed by this. I'm like, the movie has done a good job coding the relationship with Joy as the healthier relationship for Bleak. But this is not how that's supposed to happen. It just feels like he's dragging her into his shit and she doesn't necessarily want it. It's been a year since they broke up and it just feels like he's using his talent as a ladies man and as a helpless artist to really just fucking drag her into his bullshit. I don't know. I didn't like this moment for his character. It was good filmmaking, but I just felt shitty about the whole thing. I was like, here's a broken dude who's basically telling this woman, like, you got to save me now. It's true. And and I, I don't know how to express this because I do agree that I find this scene troubling and difficult and I find his character unlikable in it. But I, I also think it works in the arc of the movie and doesn't diminish the happiness of the ending. I don't know. I think the reason why, and it's a simple thing, it's that when Bleak is in recovery and he's trying to, like, practice without playing and all that... We get that simple shot of Bleak and Indigo in front of the bridge. Some memory that he has of them. And so when he gets back up on stage, which is what he thinks is what he needs and what he wants, and he realizes that that will never be there for him again, we've already been primed for his revelation that Indigo and his relationship to her is actually his future. I guess my problem with it, and we can leave it at this, but my problem with it is that it never takes into account what she actually needs it's way more about what he needs what he needs to become the better version of his father that he didn't have and it's just a little bit like what the fuck like this guy just turned this woman into his fucking mother like we don't even know who she is really what did she want did she just want to be his fucking wife and baby mama like i don't know i i absolutely agree and i in fact like i said before i want to talk about this when we talk about themes So let's get to the epilogue, the final scene, which is a mirror of the first scene. Almost word for word until the very end. I wanted to mention just how over the top ridiculous the style of the thousands of children. Every child has day glow polyester. (laughs) Every child. And I was thinking about how this technically takes place in like the year 2000, I guess, because the movie takes place in 1990. Because they mentioned 89 at one point. <laughs> That's Spike Lee's view of the future. Yeah, the future is just all polyester primary colors. I want to just call that out as a funny thing. And then, yeah, four kids come up to the thing. It's very poetic and circular. C- circular, but also it's like clearly not in any form of reality. Because literally the mirror scene is happening from the first scene. And it's very powerful. Yeah, Bleak has a son. His son's playing the trumpet. They live in the same apartment, I think. The friends want him to come out and play. Mom says no, but then Bleak says, yeah, go play. You don't need to practice right now. That's the big difference of that scene and the first scene is that the father the father intervenes and says, go outside. Don't take this too seriously. It's, it's not that particular change that I really love about this scene. It's the shots in the montage of bleak showing his son the trumpet and then him and indigo going off together once the son leaves to go play the really palpable sense that this is a beautiful life that he has that is full of meaning that he never understood or expected he was so fixated on one thing that mattered to him yeah i I, again 
the indigo element dragged me down but i'm not gonna keep harping on that but it, it was just always there for me watching that montage i was like does she really want to be here but just to bring back what i said way earlier you know what the scenes here did for me was that you know i thought i was watching the rise and fall and rise again of a musician movie which i've seen i don't know how many hundreds of times it's every music biopic and this isn't that movie at all. This is a movie about finding the balance between art and family, about the things that give our lives meaning, about the things that we create and the things that we pass on. And also about becoming the person that you're ultimately meant to be. Shadow was meant to be a fucking star. Bleak? I don't know. I think he's not really meant to be a star. He's meant to be more of like an appreciator and a teacher of, of art and not a famous artist. And I, I think it's really about like how you need to sort of discover through life who you're going to be and that there's nothing wrong with not being the big star. There's a lot of value in just raising the fucking sun. So yeah, it's a really cool ending and it really does recontextualize the entire movie. Yeah. I was, I was almost in tears. I was just, I was really, I was moved. And it's so, again, it's so different to the end of Whiplash, which is just like, watch this soul get fucking crushed. <laughs> Have you ever heard Damien Giselle talk about like what happens after that scene in his mind? He's like, no, oh. I really want to hear it. He's like, Miles Teller becomes a drug addict and J.K. Simmons gets fired from that job too because he's an asshole. And yeah, they like their lives are ruined. It's a cruel movie. It's a, and this is not a cruel movie. No, it's not, which is so crazy because for so much of the movie, it feels so distant because Bleak is so distant. And then it ends with this beautiful warmth that comes out of nowhere. Okay, let's talk legacy. Box office. This movie cost $10 million. It opened August 3rd to 4.4 million, goes on to gross. Bad spot. Bad spot, by the way. I know, it's kind of weird, right? Late summer. Uh, considering Spike Lee, Denzel, what the fuck is going on here? Why didn't they save it for like October? Well, I, you know, they didn't really have that same sort of Oscar release window that they have today. And I bet Do the Right Thing came out in the summer. So like, maybe it's like you went to see Do the Right Thing last summer. Right, go see Mo okay. Better Blues this summer. It goes on to grow 16 million domestic, which is actually slightly above average for Spike's output. But it comes between Do the Right Thing and Jungle Fever. Do the Right Thing makes $26 million. Jungle Fever makes 32. So those were two really big hits for him early in his career. And this is a major drop from those. Uh, this did wind up in the top 100, but I'm not going to make you play the ranking game. Uh, it was 69. Thank you for not making me <laughs> demean myself in the ranking game this week. But you know what? It's an appropriate ranking for a sexy movie. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of sex in this movie. We didn't really talk about that at all. Tons of sex. It's sexy. I like a sexy movie. Which, I mean, they're, you know, really, it, that's not always something Spike deals with. I mean, between this, Do the Right Thing, and Jungle Fever, there is se there's a sex scene in Do the Right Thing, sort of. There's the, there's the famous ice, scene. Ice, yeah. ice scene. But yeah, it's, it's clear that, you know, he's bringing some passion to these movies. Because I love rankings, where do you put this in the Spike Lee canon? I'll say again, I haven't seen a lot of his movies, but I definitely put it in the top five. I'd probably put it under my personal faves, which do the right thing. Obviously, 25th Hour. I like Jungle Fever a lot. What about Clockers? You showed me that I one. really like Clockers. Yeah. I'd probably put those five in the top five, honestly. Yeah. That I just said. I'm a huge fan of Inside Man. I think that's like the perfect marriage of like 
populist entertainment and a really strong authorial voice. And I was a huge fan of Black Klansman. That was one of my favorite movies of the last decade. So, but I would still put this in like upper echelon Spike Lee. Definitely upper echelon. And of course yeah. that's leaving out like his documentaries, which are also incredible. He's made a lot of fucking good movies that he's a good filmmaker. One of the best. Let's talk themes. There's two that come to mind for me. The first is what we've talked about before, how in 1990, you begin to see the emergence of new voices. We talked about it with house party and the rise of black independent cinema. We talked about it with blue steel. Ha, I brought it back up with uh, female filmmakers and it's just, this movie is almost, you know, like the vanguard of that movement because Spike has already done so much of that prior to this, that he's almost on his like victory lap at this point, but it's still part of that wave that we are seeing. And this is a kind of story that has so few parallels, the way it's told and the people it's told about, there's just not a lot of other movies like it. And that's the benefit of having, you know, a more diverse industry. Absolutely. Should we mention crime? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a small part of this movie. I know, but it's the catalyst for why his lip gets busted. You know, there's, it's there. Spike Lee has always made, you know, a deliberate point of not making his movies or not making them often about crime in the way that a lot of movies about African-Americans were at the time. He's done a couple. He's done um, Clockers. Clockers. Is a big one. Uh, and even Jungle Fever has a lot of that. But yeah, it's there. It's always going to be there, no matter what. There's also, the, I just, for a second when we first see John Turturro, I was like, oh God, guys in suits with a computer. Yuppies? <laughs> but didn't go that direction. I Thank mean, God. This movie does kind of hate finance people. Just, yeah, it characterizes them in a different way. And again, we've mentioned it before, but the whole New York thing, just the change of of new york it seems like new york 1990 was cool pretty cool place people were really into new york in 1990 i want to talk about a new theme that i've been thinking about a little bit that we certainly saw in dick tracy and i think it's probably showing up in a few other films although i i wasn't able to really come up with a great other f examples which is the duality of the madonna whore roles for women and the way that really reduces women and their agency in these movies it puts people in a box yeah and this movie is not interested in expanding the boundaries of that box at all i think it is excusable because this movie is so much about one person and the way they view the world and their perspective on their relationships but even shadow gets a scene with giant where he gets to talk about his life apart from bleak yeah and that ties in with what i was saying about the ending exactly where i just felt really bad for joey lee's character because she was not getting a voice she was literally being pushed down into a life and it's fucked up that framing of women's roles has existed for a long time and it has always been problematic because it is so prescriptive of the kinds of characters that can be written and people can play. So I think it's something to keep an eye on when it appears and call it out when it appears. Yeah, I guess the only other one I'm really thinking of in what we've seen already is Pretty Woman, where she's kind of doing both at the same time in a weird way. But maybe I'm just being academic for the sake of being academic. No, expand. <laughs> well, no, I just mean that this weird Madonna whore thing where she's literally a whore, but she's also kind of a Madonna at the same exact time. 
they're trying to make her from a whore to a Madonna, but her character already kind of yeah, is a Madonna. Okay. It's weird. It's yeah. a weird way of looking That's at true. it. That's true. And when we talked about Dick Tracy where the parallel is writ large and obvious. It also kind of exists in House Party, although it's a little bit more complex. Oh, yeah, that's right. House Party. Those two characters, I think, are not as badly as as um, clichely written as that. But it's it's certainly their dynamic is definitely like with one who is more sexually assertive and one who is more demure. But I actually think that's one of the best versions of that that I've ever seen. Yeah, mostly because they get scenes with them together and they have a real relationship that exists outside of the men. Exactly. They're they're human beings. Uh, so, yeah. Good on you, Reginald Hudlin. You know what else has it? Uh, you know, Blue Steel. You've got, you've oh, got yeah. uh, the two men. Right. The werewolf and the weird <laughs> mullet guy. Yeah, totally the same thing. Blue Steel. <laughs> all right let's wrap it up because we've got, okay. been going on a long time it has um, been i loved this movie i hope that more people see it because i think it's a really worthy successor to do the right thing it's a really good spike lee movie if you're into spike lee movies and i feel like it's a little bit forgotten in a way i think maybe the title has a lot to do with it people think it's just going to be like a fucking jazz concert i feel like it's not the best title it's crazy i love just, the title it's a great title, but it's not marketable. Like compared to like, do the right thing. Do the right thing Jungle is a terrible Fever. title. It sounds no. so boring. Do the right thing is the best do, title do ever. Do the right thing. Yeah, it's the best title in context, but on its own. Nat, if you knew absolutely nothing about the movie, and I said, "Do you want to see a movie called Do the Right Thing?" Yes, I love <laughs> movie titles that are like actions. What's the Haley Joel Osment movie? Pass it on. Is that what it is? Pay it forward. It's like that. It's like terrible. No, do the right thing. I'm not going to get into this right now because we're so late in this conversation, but do the right thing is a great title that makes me want to see the movie immediately. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. Mo Better Blues, I'm just kind of like, what is this? Like a trumpet movie? Like, I don't know. I, do I want to watch a trumpet movie right now? What? I don't know. Is this movie blue the whole time? Yeah. There's no I other colors? Know. Are we just going to be like watching guys play instruments? Is there going to be any drama? I don't know. It, it just never it never spoke to me. Um, can we say please rate, review, and subscribe back to the movies? We're really making a push to get more listeners, so please recommend us. It's incalculable how much help that gives us. Yeah, if you know people that love movies, that want to listen to people rattle on about movies for hours and hours like we just did, Please send them this podcast. We think they will like it a lot. Uh, at BTTM Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Follow, share, and Gmail. Send us an email. And thank you to Andy Gagnon, who made our amazing theme song. And that's it. That's Mo Better Blues. This has been Back to the Movies. I'm Nat. And I'm Ben. And we'll see you next week when we go back to the movies. Woo!